If you have a Bible, let's open it up. We're going to continue our time trucking through Hebrews. After today, we only got two more chapters in this great book. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. So if you will, please stand along with me and let us show reverence to God's Word as I read it. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, but she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for this great chapter. Thank You for Your Word that speaks not only to the Hebrew, Hebrew Christians thousands of years ago, but speaks to us today. We thank You for these great examples that have gone before us to spur our faith, and Lord, I pray for those who come in here who are weary, who are wounded, who are questioning their faith, who are limping along in the Christian life, or maybe who aren't even uh, professors of who You are, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that You would speak through me here and now, that You would wash us with Your Word, that we would see how You are not only relevant in our daily lives, but You are the King that is worthy of our praise. Lord Jesus, thanks that we can be together here this morning. We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, I got something for you. 
How many of you own one of these? Okay, a handful. I'm sure many of you have worn them if you haven't. Let me ask you this. How many of you have been in a bike crash where you've needed one of these? Okay, a handful. I want to hear that story afterwards. My story goes a little something like this. Um, a couple years ago, a friend of mine gave me this helmet. Well, he kind of gave it to me. His company produced it, and he said if I go and buy it on Amazon and leave a review, he'll reimburse me for the cost of it. I said, that's a pretty good deal. Sure, let's go for it. I didn't think much about if it would hold up if I got into a bike crash, which is why we wear the helmets, right? So, I've gotten into cycling here over the last couple years, and um, two years ago, I think it was, maybe 18 months, I was riding around Fort Collins, it was like a 20-mile ride, and I got to the, to the tip-top of the foothills back here in the the Fossil Creek Trail, and I, I started coming downhill, and I was just anticipating this smooth sailing ride home. It's great. I was exhausted. So I'm coming down, and I crossed this bridge, and right at the end of this bridge is a sharp left turn. So I didn't think much of it. I had done it many times before, and so I take it, but I'm coming in a little hot. <laughs> and so I take the turn, and my bike, it goes off the paved trail, and it's riding along the cement, I said, uh-oh, going a little too fast here. And I try to just merge right back on. Big mistake. My tire catches the cement, and over I go. Now I'm clipped in, so I fall, and I can't brace myself, and I'm just sitting there, breathing hard, checking myself, am I okay? There's some pedestrians about 50 yards down from the trail. They come running up. I said, are you okay? Are you okay? And I assessed the damage, I had ripped my shirt, I was a little scraped up, and I said, yeah, I think so. And they said, how's your head? I said, uh, it doesn't hurt. And they were like, well, you smacked your head on the pavement. I said, oh. So I take my helmet off and I assess the damage and there's like, there's a little tiny scuff on, on the back here, you can't really see it, but that was all the damage to my helmet. And fortunately, there was no damage to my head. So I get on my bike, and I ride home, and it was smooth sailing home, and wasn't coming in as hot. Took it nice and slow, and I get home, and I text my buddy and said, hey, guess what? Your helmet just held up in a crash. And he's like so pumped up. He's asking me all these questions about the helmet. He's like, did it crack at all? Like, can you send pictures? Can you amend your review on Amazon? Like, by the way, I'm fine. Like... <laughs> If, if you cared to ask about me, that would be great. He didn't, but he's a businessman. He cared about his product. So, Well, I share that story with you because we put our faith in various things throughout our lives. And if you really think about it, we do this all the time. Just this morning, you driving to this church building, you were putting faith in the tires on your car. You were putting faith in the furnaces here in this church building that it'd be nice and warm. You're even putting faith in the chair that you're sitting in right now, that the screws aren't going to come loose in the back of it. Maybe some of them are loose, and we're trying to fix that, so please be patient with us. Well, sooner or later, our faith will get tested, whether it's a pop tire or a broken furnace or a broken chair or a bike helmet. 
But maybe the test that comes with our faith is something more serious. A medical diagnosis. A besetting sin that has just reared its ugly head. An accident. Something that we thought we were in control of, but then all of a sudden there's a sudden loss in our lives. And what we put our faith in, it begs the question, will it stand up to the test? Can we persevere when we're cruising along and all of a sudden we lose control and we crash? Well, for the Christian, we can take great confidence in our faith. Because authentic Christian faith doesn't reside in ourselves. Our faith resides in the objective truth of who God is. He is the object of our faith. It's not our feelings. It's not based on the amount of faith that we can muster up. Our faith resides in who God is as He's revealed Himself in His Word. This is the object of our faith. And so last week, Pastor Aaron led us through this first half of Hebrews chapter 11. This great chapter, which many saints who have gone before us call it the hall of faith. He says, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.1, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Now, I love the picture of a hall of faith. It's like we're walking in this hall and there's these great portraits on both sides of the hall. And we've got Abel, and we've got Enoch, and we've got Abraham, and we've got Sarah, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Isaac. And today, we're going to see Moses. We're going to see Rahab. And we're going to see many more. And Hebrews 11.2 says, By faith the people of old received their commendation. They were commended because of their faith. And we are too. And so, this morning, I'm going to really zoom in that these Old Testament saints here in Hebrews 11 are commendable examples for us so that we will persevere in our faith. So that we will persevere in our faith. I've got three points for us this morning. It's always three points with me. Forgive me. My first point is confident faith. My second point is courageous faith. And lastly, commendable faith. It's going to be kind of like a funnel. We're going to have a lot, and then we're going to have a little with these three points. So be patient with me if we're halfway through the sermon and you're like, he's still on the first point? Oh my goodness. All right, let's dive into it. First point, confident faith. This is in the life of Moses, verses 23 through 29. And here in verse 23, we begin not just with Moses, but more specifically with his parents. And way back in Exodus chapter 1, let me just remind you that there is a new sheriff in town. There is a new king, a new pharaoh, one who is threatened by the Israelites as they continue to multiply and become mighty in his land of Egypt. So, he feels threatened and therefore he enslaves them. And he oppresses them. And he makes a plan to kill them. But he doesn't just kill them outright. He makes a plan to start to wipe out the next generation by killing the Hebrew boys. But, in God's providence, the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh. 
And if you remember, Shipra and Pua, God used these midwives in a mighty way to let the children live. So, Pharaoh then says, okay, I'm going to make a law. And any Hebrew boy who is born will be thrown into the river. And we see this evil, infanticide. Well, Moses' parents lived in confident faith. They expressed their faith through this confident plan that they set forth. Now, back in our Hebrews text here in verse 23, it says that Moses was a beautiful child. Back in Exodus, he says that he's a fine child. <laughs> what does this mean? Did Moses' parents have faith because of this cute kid? Well, if, if that's the case, every parent thinks their kid is cute. Fortunately, Cortland's not in here right now, but if you've seen that kid, oh my gosh, he smiles. This is my fifth son. He smiles, and everybody in the room smiles. He is a fine child, and he's got nothing on Moses. But I don't think that's what the author is sharing with us here. I think the author of Hebrews is telling us that Moses was beautiful, not because of the potential that he had, that all young children have, that we see in our children, but because of the covenant-keeping God who promised a people, who promised a place, and promised His blessing among His people. Moses' parents knew these promises, and by faith, they thought that God was going to use this child to fulfill God's promises. And it gave them confidence to act upon their faith to protect this child. And so as the story of Exodus 2 unfolds, we see that Moses is hidden for three months. And then when he can no longer be hidden, as it's very hard to hide any children, let alone a three-month-old child, his parents come up with a plan. And quite the plan that it is. They make a basket and when they see Pharaoh's daughter come out of the palace towards the river, they put Moses in that basket. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses and this beautiful, fine child. Well, cue Moses' sister. She goes right up to Pharaoh's daughter as she pulls the basket and baby Moses out of the water. And Moses' sister says, hey, I've got an idea. How about you have a surrogate nurse for her? Well, what a great idea, Pharaoh's daughter says. And then Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses to his mom and pays Moses' mom to take care of her. What a plan! What confidence to put this forth. Moses was preserved by his parents' faith. And he was raised among the people of God in probably slave huts amidst the oppression of Pharaoh to the Israelites. But there he was taught the faith. And he was raised up in the ways of the Lord. And I think this has a unique responsibility for all parents. Especially Christian parents. Not just the parents, but the grandparents and the aunts, and the uncles. We should pray for the children in our lives. We should dedicate them to the Lord. We should make plans. We should have confidence 
that the Lord is going to use this next generation to accomplish His purposes. We are to put the plans in place to, yes, protect them, but also to teach them and to include them among the people of God. You see, faith is not only confidence, but it is a confidence that moves us to action. And we see that in Moses' parents' lives. Moving forward here in verse 24, the spotlight now shines on Moses specifically. And he doesn't just stay in the slave huts among the Israelites. No, he goes back to Pharaoh's daughter. And he is raised up in the courts of the king of Egypt. He's educated among them. And if you think about it, if you think of the Pharaoh in Genesis and how Joseph was the prime minister, second in command, and when his brothers come down and how much lavish grain and wealth that he gives his brothers, oh, how much more would Moses have being a family member of the king of Pharaoh? Everything he could ever want was his. But he sees this manner of life. And as he's offered all the treasures of the world, of his world, Egypt, he throws it all away. Why? Why? Because he had a forward-looking faith. He knew that there was something better than the things of this world. Something longer-lasting. Notice that here in our passage, it describes that what was being offered are fleeting pleasures of sin. It does say that it is pleasurable, that it would be enjoyed, but it's fleeting. And it's sinful, opposed to God. How often is the pleasure of sin enjoyed, but temporal? We get this immediate gratification when we dive into these sinful pleasures, and yeah, it might feel good for a moment, but how often do we, are we left feeling empty afterwards? Moses recognized that. He saw that. And he chose not to indulge. He understood that they weren't only fleeting, but that they were a lie. And that they were opposed to God and His way. He said no to the fleeting pleasures of sin and yes to something better. Something longer lasting. Something true. And something that would be rewarded. You could say that he had the conviction of the things unseen. His faith. In verse 26, I think we see where his confidence came from for his faith. It says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. The reproach of Christ? Now, if you know anything about the biblical storyline, Moses came thousands of years before Jesus. How could he understand the reproach of Christ? Or the blame? Or the weight of Christ. Well, I think what the author wants us to see here is that Moses, he's a type of Christ. He is a shadow. Moses is a shadow of the one who was to come. And Moses saw this a little bit in his life. He said in Deuteronomy 18 that there would be a prophet who comes after him. But I think more so, Moses saw that there was something greater than the things of this world than the fleeting pleasures. And he pursued that. Moses, 
is a type of Christ because he had a forward-looking faith to something better. He knew that there were pleasures of God that were to be had. And it moved him to action. Moses didn't understand this fully, but he looked forward to it as a reward, as an assurance of the things hoped for. Way more than the pleasures of this world. And I think there's a unique application here for us when the pleasures of sin come tempting or knocking at our door. Do we call it as it is? Do we recognize it as fleeting? Do we recognize it as a lie? Do we recognize it as sinful and opposed to God? I don't think I need to get very more specific here because you in your conscience know what is right, what is and what is opposed to the Lord. And I know for many of us in the Christian life, we have chosen to indulge in these fleeting pleasures of sin. And it's kind of like Chinese food, where you eat it and it tastes good, but you're left hungry just a couple hours later. I think that's why they give you so much to take home, because you have to eat it in a couple of hours. All jokes aside... We are called to walk in the light together. We as Christians are called to pursue not the fleeting pleasures of sin, but to pursue the pleasures of God. King David said in Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Are you wanting to identify with the things of the world? Are you wanting to identify with the things that are temporal, that are fleeting, that won't last? Or are you wanting to identify together as the people of God, trusting Him in what He's ordained through His Word for His people? Moses understood that. And I think he is a motivation for us as a Christian community to walk in the light together. To pursue repentance together. To call sin for what it is together. Well, the author of Hebrews finishes up this section of Moses by looking at the Exodus narrative. Moses leaves Egypt. He's not afraid of man. He's not afraid of Pharaoh. But he's confident in the Lord. And we see that because he teaches and institutes the Passover into the nation of Israel. Year after year it is taught, and then he leads the people across the Red Sea. And so, as we close up this, this first point, confident faith. See, Hebrews 11 is written to us. as We have these different case studies, these different portraits on the wall that we are to look at and be encouraged to think about and to take confidence not so much in their faith, not so much in our faith, but the one who gives faith to carry on. But you might be asking, what is authentic faith? I have a quote for you. It's long, so buckle up. This quote goes like this. What is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it? A holy hoping for the best? Is that how you think of faith? No, authentic faith is the confident assurance 
of events yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and a hoping for the best, not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reason, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. But thought upon what? God and His promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. That is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it's believing God. Taking God at His Word, living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what He says. That His speaking is His doing. It is abiding assurance in God and His promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to Him. So do you wish to be a more consistently obedient, steadily persevering Christian? A stronger Christian? A more courageous and outspoken Christian? Then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith and your faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all His promises. But how does this happen? How do we conform our reality more to who Jesus is? By immersing ourselves in the faith-arousing Word of God. Read of Jesus Christ. And the same powerful Word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same Word that can bring you to life to furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. End quote. I love that. So, we will see throughout not just Hebrews 11, but all throughout our lives that faith has a number of different facets. We've already seen it this morning. That faith has a facet of obedience. Faith has a facet of making plans, of sacrifices, of saying no to sin. And faith... Faith has this facet, like a diamond, of looking forward to the reward. And we will be overcome, not just by believing in God, but believing God as He's revealed Himself in His Word. We can take confidence in who this God is because He is the object of our faith. Authentic faith, full of confidence. My next point is courageous faith. Verses 30 through 38. If you have a Bible, let's turn it over to Joshua chapter 2. We will see courageous faith during the time of Joshua. Joshua 2 is in uh, the Old Testament. It's the sixth book, number six in your Bible. And so shortly after Moses' death, Joshua was commissioned to lead the nation of Israel. One of his first tasks 
tasks was sending two spies into the promised land. And when they entered into the promised land, they came to Jericho. So Jericho, if you're unfamiliar with this story, which if you are unfamiliar with it, I'd encourage you to go read it this afternoon in Joshua 6, but we're in Joshua 2. Jericho has these massive walls around this city. No one can enter this city unless the gate is put down. And this city could be self-containing for weeks on end. People didn't need to leave this city. It was well protected. And so, we come to Rahab, a Canaanite woman who's a prostitute. And her house is in this massive wall. And our text this morning says that she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. She hid them when the king of Jericho caught wind of these spies and went looking for them to kill them. Well, look with me in Joshua 2, starting in verse 8. Before the men, that is the spies, lay down, she, Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For before, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Check this out. Verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted for there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. Rahab and the other inhabitants of the land of promise had heard not only of the people of God, but of God Himself. And we see that Rahab put her faith in the God who made the heavens above and the earth beneath. And we see that by this courageous act to hide the spies. To give a friendly welcome. So if we fast forward a few chapters in Joshua, the people have now crossed over the Jordan River. They are in the promised land. And they are told to march around this massive walled city, Jericho. They are to march once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they are to march around seven times. They are commanded to have the priests, the seven priests, will take seven trumpets, and after the seventh time, they are to blow those trumpets and shout, and the walls will simply fall. Now that plan seems kind of crazy, right? Never mind the significance of the seven trumpets and priests and times and days. They're just supposed to march around this walled city and when they shout, it's going to fall. That's crazy, right? It's absurd. Well, obedience to the Lord oftentimes can seem absurd to the skeptic. But that's exactly what the Lord wanted and that's exactly how the walls fell. By faith. You see, a courageous faith is also a faith that is marked by obedience even in the face of such skepticism. Obedience to the Lord takes courage to believe in what He commands, and it responds with faithful action. That what He commands, 
is for our good. So, Joshua and his army, they do that. And the walls fall, and they take the city. And everyone is killed. Everyone except Rahab. Rahab and her family. And so we see in Joshua chapter 6, when the walls fall, that Rahab is saved. More than that, Rahab is included here in Hebrews chapter 11. She's got a nice portrait on the wall in the hall of faith. Rahab is also included in the line of King David. Rahab is also included in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But think about this with me. Rahab shouldn't be there. Rahab should not be here. She is the only non-Jewish person mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. She is a prostitute. She's an outcast. She's done things in her life that she doesn't deserve to be mentioned here. But notice that none of those things are highlighted for us. It is her faith that is commended. And we see her faith expressed in courageous action. And I think this has a unique application for all of us because the reality is is that none of us deserve to be in the hall of faith. All of us are like Rahab. Whether we're a prostitute or a Canaanite or not, none of us deserve to stand before a holy God because of our sin. But her sin isn't mentioned here. Her faith is mentioned here. And we are considered righteous We are considered accepted before God because of our faith. Not because of the good things that we've done or not not because of the bad things that we've done. If you notice back in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab, she's compared to the disobedient who perished. So she was obedient. But did that get her life? Did that get her into the hall? I don't think so. I think Rahab is a model of the Christian life because she hears about who God is and what He has done. And she puts her faith in this God. And that faith is shown in her hiding the spies. And that faith is shown in this great courageous act. And that faith is also shown when she's not only saved physically, when the walls of Jericho fall down, but she's saved spiritually forever. She's included in the line of Jesus. And let me just really nail this home. It's not because of her obedience. She obeyed because she knew God and she believed in Him and she feared Him. We get obedience mixed up so often. We say, I will obey so that I am loved. But the Gospel says, I am loved and therefore I will obey. And we see that in the life of Rahab here. And so let me ask you, do you love Jesus? Do you obey Jesus? Or is your obedience so that you will get more love of Jesus? So that you will get more favor from Jesus? So that He will be pleased with you? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But God is the one who furnishes our faith. But God is the one who gives us faith. And we respond in obedience to that. You can put your faith in Jesus today 
And He will be pleased with you. He will love you. And we will walk with you and help you obey Him. Trust Him. His ways are good. You can do that today. Finishing up this courageous faith point. I love what the author of Hebrews does here in our passage. It's almost like he expects the readers to pick up the pace and instead of walking through the hall, we, we start running through the hall and we see all these pictures and they're just glimpses. He gives these great portraits of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And I'm going to take one out of the author's book here and I'm not going to go into detail on all these folks because we'll never get out of here. Time would fail us. But these are great acts of courage mentioned here in verses 33 through 38. Tremendous acts of faith. And let me just, let me just say, the things that are mentioned here are things that happen in the Old Testament. And if you want to chase some of these things down, this is a great faith encouraging study. But let me just highlight some of these actions, these courageous actions of the Old Testament saints. We see in verse 33 that by faith they conquered kingdoms. Through faith. And I think of King David and many of his military victories. Later on we see stop the mouth of lions. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6. But I also think of King David when his sheep would get snatched by a lion and he would go rescue it from the paw of the lion. Or even Samson. Quench the power of fire. Might think of Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're made strong out of weakness. Reminds me of the shepherd boy, David. The least of his brothers. Made strong. Mighty in war. Gideon, Judges chapter 7. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This refers to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. But it gets even more grim. Mocking, flogging, chains and imprisonment. This was the fate of the prophet Jeremiah. Sawn in two. Historically, the prophet Isaiah died by be being cut in half with a wood saw. Killed by the sword. It's the prophet Uriah. Went about in sheep, in skins of sheep and goats. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in the deserts, mountains, in dens and caves. This was the fate of the prophets of the Old Testament. But notice what the author says here in Hebrews 11. Of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. God's enemies cannot be compared to God's servants. And while God's enemies wanted God's servants dead, and some of them did die, God sought them worthy. And God left them as examples, commendable examples, so that we would be encouraged. Their faith is courageous. They had assurance of a future hope. But notice back in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Literally, a better Resurrection. They were looking forward. They saw something was coming. 
a better resurrection. And so as we've reached this crescendo of the hall of faith, how, how should we apply these things to our lives? How should we have great courage? Well, let me ask you, where in your life do you need courage? Where in your life are you faint-hearted? It doesn't take long to look at the culture around us and see how fast it's sinking. The institutions of marriage and the family are under attack. People in our culture value animals more than they value humans. We need great courage to stand up and stand on God's Word and who He's created us to be. We are to live a courageous, a courageous faith. And I'm not talking just political battles. There is a culture here in the States that we do need to stand up and fight for, but there is also a culture abroad that needs to know the name of Jesus. And we are to live not, a, not just a courageous faith, but we are to live a persevering faith and one that gets us out of our comfort zone. I think of the church plants that we're going to go on, that we're going to send people on. I think of our brother David Morgan who preached to us this past summer, who's down in Tijuana right now getting trained up as a missionary so that he's going to go to the Middle East and proclaim Jesus in some of the hardest places of the earth. We need people to stand up for the Gospel here, and we need people to stand up for the Gospel abroad. And it will take a courageous faith. And that's for all of us. Whether you go on a church plant, whether you go overseas, or whether you encourage those who will be going. We need people from Fort Collins to go to the Czech Republic, to go to Ukraine, to go to Afghanistan, to go even into Russia. Because they need the Gospel and that's what's going to bring about lasting change. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy. Not a comfortable faith, but a courageous faith. Lastly, a commendable faith. As we land the plane here in verses 39 and 40, I think the author does something kind of startling. And he says that something's missing from these portraits in the hall. Something is lacking in their confident and courageous faith. I'll read him again. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Did you catch it? Did you see what was missing? It's you and me. We're missing from their faith. The author says that they did not receive what was promised. Back in verse 33, it did say that they obtained promise, but the author's talking about the greater promise here. The Messiah. The coming Messiah and salvation from Him. Every single Old Testament saint died before Jesus came on the scene. Romans 4 makes it clear that they did enter into glory because of their faith. Their faith counted them as righteous just as our faith does. But the promise was unfulfilled in their time. Why? Well, no one was made perfect under the Old Covenant. Because Jesus had not lived a sinless life and died on the cross, it was not until the cross that salvation would be made perfect or made complete. So these Old Testament saints 
who had great, courageous, and confident faith, their faith was forward-looking. But for us here today, we have a faith that is backward-looking. That we look back to the cross and what Christ has accomplished for us through His sinless life. He was perfect. And therefore, through Him, our faith is made perfect. But perfect in what way? There are days in my Christian life where my faith doesn't feel perfect. It doesn't seem perfect. Well, it's made perfect through Jesus and alongside the Old Testament saints and the saints of today. You see, Jesus is better. It's the refrain that we've hit time and time again through the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He is perfect. He's the perfect high priest. We no longer need a prophet. He is the one that was promised. He is the mediator that was promised. He is perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice made once for all. He's the perfect intercessor who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And this is the great paradox of the Christian life. That He has made us perfect already, but not yet fully. And that's why we need each other, church. That's why the Apostle Paul says, and I am confident that He who began a good work in you, in you, will bring it to completion. Will make it perfect at the day of Christ Jesus. And so as the Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to faced many trials and had death knocking on their door, we too face many trials. And it might feel like death. And it might feel like we don't have the strength to carry on. But church, that's why He's given us one another. That our faith is not private. That our faith is not personal. Yes, we do make professions of faith as individuals, but it's not meant to be lived out in isolation. Our faith is meant to be carried on together. And as we walk, as we march towards glory, we are called to have a faith that perseveres, but that perseveres together. This is what God has intended for us. The perfect sacrifice. The perfect Savior. Jesus, who is perfect, who is better. And as we march on together, we will march on and run this race looking to Jesus and we will finish this race by faith because we have a great object of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful at the reality that You do good works in our lives, that You have done the greatest work, that You have given us the perfect sacrifice in Christ. And I pray as we do continue to look back at what He's done for us, that it would fuel us to look forward to who You are and what You've done. Lord, we need passages like Hebrews 11 to encourage us, to keep us marching on. But we also need one another. And so Lord, I pray if there are those here who are struggling in their faith, that they would have the boldness to cry out to You, cry out to those who are sitting next to them because you have designed your church to help us persevere together in the faith. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In your name, amen.